We are live. All right. Hi there, everybody, and welcome to Connected Learning TV. This is the third webinar of our May series, um, Equity by Design, a DML 2015 showcase. And if you're watching this, please take a moment to share it with your networks. My name is Gabriel Peters Lazaro. I am an instructor, researcher, and maker in the Division of Media Arts and Practice at the School of Cinematic Arts at USC. And I will be one of your hosts and a co-organizer today, along with Sankita Shrestova and Andrew Slack. And they'll introduce themselves momentarily, as well as the rest of our participants. Throughout this series on Connected Learning TV, we're going to be shining the spotlight on topics and speakers from the 2015 Digital Media and Learning Conference. The conference theme is Equity by Design, and it's going to be held June 11th through 13th uh, here in Los Angeles. You can find the full schedule of events and descriptions at dml2015.dmlhub.net. And now today, we're going to be talking with Mimi Ito, Nicole Pinkard, Henry Jenkins, Craig Watkins, and Benjamin Stokes. And we're going to be discussing their experiences sort of in the field building work around digital media and learning. And a little background on why we chose to organize this webinar, this topic, these people, um, Sangeeta, Andrew, and I. In each of our lives and work, we're very interested in story. And story is a motivator, driver, and organizer for change. You know, me and cinematic arts, our work together on media activism and participatory politics, Andrew and the Harry Potter Alliance, we find that that core narrative is, is key in many of those efforts. And the field and community of digital media and learning has also been central to our philosophy, our work, and the things we see as you know, driving action and uh, motivation in the world. And we're organizing sort of a participatory experience for the conference this year. Uh, and it involves storytelling and action. And we realized that for us, there were some pieces of the story of DML itself that were missing. We didn't quite have the whole story, the big picture, despite like a deep engagement with the community in the field and people in the field, like the people here today. So we saw an opportunity to come together and really sort of share and shape sort of an oral history of that field and to get some of the narratives from the people involved from the beginning uh, to really think about what is DML, uh, where has it come from, and what the future might look like. So that's sort of what we're hoping and excited to be doing here today. And before we dive into our conversation, I want to go over a couple of uh, quick details uh, about the production here. Um, to those watching live right now, uh, we welcome your comments and questions. You can submit them either via Twitter using the hashtag, hashtag DML2015, and Connected Learning, and DML2055. So those are the hashtags we're using. You can also use the Q&A feature that you should see within the video player if you're watching on the Connected Learning TV website. And throughout the conversation, we'll do our best to bring those questions into the dialogue uh, here in the Hangout. And now, uh, just before we begin, I would like to give everybody a chance to introduce themselves. And Sankita, would you please start us off? Yeah, um, as Gabe said, my name is Singita Shastava. I work actually with Henry Jenkins on the Media Activism and Participatory Politics project based at USC. And I'm going to turn it over to Andrew, and then Andrew can turn it over to the rest of the panelists. Terrific. My name is Andrew Slack. I'm, <clears throat> I feel really honored to be working with Singita and Gabe on uh, 
on this uh, project for DML uh, for DML 2015. I uh, co-founder of and movement director of the Harry Potter Alliance. So uh, I guess with that, we'll just um, turn it over to our, uh, our yes, participants. Next person, um, next person in my window here would be Aunt, uh, Benjamin. Ben, do you want to introduce yourself? Sure. Uh, Benjamin Stokes. I'm a postdoc at UC Berkeley right now um, and uh, joining the faculty at American University in the fall. Uh, and I do civic media of various sorts. One connected bit here is that I'm a co-founder of a group called Games for Change, which is part of how I got to know the digital media and learning community. And Craig, do you want to introduce yourself? Sure. Uh, Craig Watkins, uh, professor in the uh, Moody College of Communication at the University of Texas at Austin. Um, I guess I've been involved with, with DML for, for some time now uh, in, in various ways. Um, uh, primarily, I think, um, as a member of a research network, the Connected Learning Research Network, and um, sort of, uh, essentially uh, participating in that effort to uh, apply a number of the Connected Learning principles into different kinds of research uh, spaces and scenarios, and so looking forward to talking about that today. And Henry? Hi, I'm Henry Jenkins. I'm the Provost Professor of Communication, Journalism, Cinematic Arts, and Education at the University of Southern California, and I've been involved with DML since the very beginning. I think Mimi, Nicole, and I were the first three grantees of the MacArthur Initiative and through those years, I've done work on new media literacies, and more recently, as part of the participatory youth and participatory politics network. Great, thank you. And Mimi? Yeah, uh, I'm Mimi Ito. My official hats are uh, research director of the Digital Media and Learning Hub, uh, chair of the Connected Learning Research Network, advisory board chair of the Connected Learning Alliance, and co-founder of my new passion project, which is a benefit corporation for online learning called Connected Camps, and we're doing a summer Minecraft camp. Uh, but really, what I do is hang out with kids on the internet and figure out how they learn, and yeah, I'm kind of, as Henry said, a DML old-timer and looking forward to you know, going down memory lane as well as talking about the future. Awesome, and finally, Nicole. Okay. Hi, I'm Nicole Prinker, um, professor at DePaul University, founder of Digital Youth Network, which was, I guess, um, the first implementation grant um, of the DML work. Um, and I'm actually happy to say we'll be using the Connected Camps, the work of Mimi. And we've probably, in multiple different ways, we've been part of many of the implementation initiatives, UMedia, and we're now. Um, um, playing a key role in uh, the implementation and design of Cities of Learning. Oh, we had to unmute ourselves. <laughs> so that was that's really great. I was wondering, maybe everybody, we don't need to go turn by turn from now on, um, and you know, because we, we want to hope, as much as possible, we want this to be conversational, so um, we're going to try and do that from, we're not going to call on you anymore. But we, we were wondering if you maybe, now we've kind of gotten the official affiliations. I mean, some of you were already starting to talk about the history. And we're wondering if a few of you could share your personal story of how you came to be part of DML. Why DML for you? Where were you, where were you in your career or in your, even in your learning trajectory as, as a scholar and as a, as a human being that brought you 
and how, how that brought you to DML. I was wondering if, you, if a few of you could share that. I'd be happy to jump in. Uh, you know, I was just thinking as I was seeing all these uh, uh, old friends arrayed on this hangout that uh, I remember, Nicole, that first uh, one of those meetings that John Seely Brown organized for the MacArthur Foundation, just getting them uh, thinking about this new area where uh, the foundation had been uh, up to that point investing really in school reform primarily in their education initiative and then John Seely Brown had organized a set of conversations, just like interesting people in the field exploring this area of digital around learning. And I really have this vivid memory of sitting around a room where Connie was kind of at the back of the room trying to figure things out. And Nicole was in the room. And John Seely Brown was getting everybody enthused. And it was the first of many conversations uh, with people who have really ended up being uh, many of who, uh, who ended up being part of the DML community and which eventually kicked off, as Henry said, uh, uh, initial investment of three projects uh, that were, you know, Nicole's was more on the design and programmatic side. Uh, Henry's was a very agenda setting work around uh, media literacy. And then uh, Michael Carter, uh, Peter Lyman, and I did um, this exploratory research of just what the hell is going on out there with kids these days. And it was a very interesting moment where there was clearly something being catalyzed. And I think uh, JSB being on the board was a big part of that initial impetus. Uh, but the I think to the foundation's credit, they spent some time trying to figure out what it was going to be about. But I think this origin story of DML is uh, really important in that it signals uh, both some of the strengths of the approach as well as I think some of the challenges that I, I'd like to talk about as we move forward in an initiative that has been really coalesced by um, a very strong sort of network of people with um, you know, a fairly innovative, progressive, uh, approach that is, it's a highly heterogeneous network in a lot of ways, but it is also a lot about the people and the relationships and the personalities, which I think has been um, a tremendous strength of the work, uh, but also something that uh, we need to figure out um, how it's going to evolve as we grow and spread to different kinds of practices. Yeah, so to add, um I mean, is this a meeting in the Exploratorium, one of these meetings, Mimi? We had. Well, I think the first one we were at, Nicole, was actually the one at USC. Okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was yeah. later, yeah. And I think Henry, I think when we first met, it might have been there, but also when we came to MIT um, to visit you there. So uh, my involvement with this probably is slightly, um, is I was actually working at the University of Chicago in I think the last grant that they were given to education when they decided to uh, stop funding education and uh, Connie was our program officer and we happened to be at a school that was doing uh, we had spent multiple years doing supporting teachers and using technology and the teachers were ready to move to one-to-one -one computing and I think it was happenstance that that was happening at the same time that MacArthur was changing their funding initiative. And so I was like, hey, can you help us think about how do we have more of a student focus 
then in teacher focus. And, uh, and that was the same time that I think the conversations were beginning um, to have, they were having around beginning to make the shift. So we spent a lot of early time just really in conversations with Connie and MacArthur folks to, to try to provide visuals of what it looks like, of what are kids doing and what do they do. And I would say one of the uh, really important pieces was there was the acceptance and understanding that it couldn't be school bound and that even though we were working in a school we were um, given the license and the freedom to really think outside of the school so um, yeah that was at the yeah that was way way back in the beginning so it started in one small school for us with set, which was only 75 uh, working with 75 uh, 75 kids so uh, go ahead so yeah, my point of entry comes at that exploratorium meeting that uh, Nicole just was talking about. That um, my background is in media studies and cultural studies, not in education. Uh, I did actually train as a teacher decades ago and uh, couldn't get a job because I couldn't coach. And at the time, it was pretty clear that as a male, you had to coach or you couldn't teach. Uh, so, but I had started to be more and more interested in youth, uh, fan cultures. Uh, how we understand and the kind of knowledge communities that were taking shape on the internet and I had taught Dana Boyd when she was a student at MIT she was involved in some of those early conversations and she put my name I think in front of JSB and uh, Connie Yowell and, and the others and I got invited to go there and share some of my research um, it, one of the things that may, I was thinking about this morning was I arrived there without having a chance to preview my PowerPoint and I had a new assistant and she somehow had randomized all the slides. So I was up there at this high stakes meeting trying to present our research with slides just coming willy nilly uh, trying to create a frame and I think that improvisational moment uh, is something we've all still been doing all ever, ever since that we've been sometimes making up us as we go along, but also grounded deeply in the research we've done in the past. And for me, this has been the most incredible network of thinkers and doers that I've ever had the privilege to work with. That I now have education after my title says everything about the impact of the last 10 years for me of working with digital media and learning. Yeah, I, I would say for me that um, my kind of introduction to the DML community I think it occurred on sort of two separate events. Um, the dates are kind of blurring here, but there was a, another meeting probably around 07, 08 or so, I think in New Jersey or the, or the New York area region, sort of bringing uh, people together to contribute to um, the, the, the series of the volumes of books that were edited as a part of the initial launch of DML. Um, and um, I was a part of the, the, the project that Katie Salen edited on, on games and learning. Um, and then after that, um, I think after that, Henry uh, invited me to uh, to do the keynote at the very first DML conference, which was 2010 in San Diego. It just it doesn't seem like uh, it was what five years ago now. Um, and I think the title of that particular DML was diversifying participation. And a lot of my work was really be becoming more and more aligned with the sort of thematics of that particular DML uh, gathering. And I think DML as well, um, you know, began to start understanding that the world of, of, of young people and their relationship to technology was rapidly changing. And a lot of the sort of assumptions that have been made, particularly about um, low income or, or African American and Latino youth, that a lot of those assumptions were sort of going, undergoing a radical sort of revision as a result of the sort of adoption of mobile in those communities 
uh, a lot of the shifts in terms of the migration to social media in those communities. And so a lot was happening on the ground uh, that was far ahead of what anyone could have predicted or anticipated in terms of how the digital world was changing and how questions related to digital divides and digital equity were also evolving. And so I think my involvement with DML more broadly has been to really try to uh, tune in to those kinds of developments and think about them and what the implications are as we sort of move forward. I'll add a, a word on um, how I encountered some of this initiative. And one one shift that I think is useful is we, I, I'm sometimes asked, you know, what is DML? And sometimes it's easier to say, where is DML? Um, and I think that kind of where question lets us look at all the different places where it's happening and sometimes even where it was happening before it was called DML. For me, the, the kind of publicness of this initiative um, happened partly with the uh, formal and a launch of the um, MacArthur grant making in this area in the fall of 2006 in New York at the um, American Museum of Natural History, which is a really interesting um, moment, partly because it was at a museum. Uh, it announced some of these grants uh, that uh, the work had already been well underway um, that, that Mimi and Henry and Nicole have been talking about. Um, but I think that it was, for me, it was interesting to really watch some of these old foundations, like MacArthur are really, um, some ways traditional foundation shift to start supporting some of this really experimental novel work um, and trying to listen to some of the things that, that Craig was talking about. Um, I remember um, I first met Connie Yell at a um, panel we, when we organized the first Games for Change. She came to the very first meeting in New York at, in 2004 and she said uh, funders just can't support these games things. They're too they're too crazy. It'll take it'll take probably three five years before any funder would like a serious foundation Ford MacArthur um, would be able to consider. And it happened much faster. But I think that a lot of that credit goes to people like John Seeley Brown having conversations at the board level. He joined the MacArthur board in in 2002 uh, and 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 was there in 2012. And I think that that's an interesting times uh, piece of time as well to think about how did this how did these conversations start shifting. When were they really high-level conversations? Um, when did they start pulling on pieces that had been going on for a long time? I mean, I think back to Brenda Laurel's 1992 ethnography around games and girls, which is a really interesting, just to, to point for me as somebody who's really interested in games, there are some really, there are points that go back much further, of course. But there was a coalescing, a bringing together of voices in an attempt to frame um, in, in 2006 was when the MacArthur launched its blog. That was the very first blog the foundation had ever had. And a lot of this was at a time when the foundation was like, what, we're going to have a blog ourselves? We're going to try and be in Second Life? Can you remember we, we tried that crazy thing for a little while? Um, Jonathan Fanton, the president of the foundation, was going to be in Second Life. Uh, and that was um, not to mention trying to bring the International Criminal Court into, into Second Life. There was some very uh, kind of straight looking back where like what was what was going on there. And I think it was partly about this moment of trying to bring some of the old institutions into into conversation with this really edgy research that was happening uh, with, with some of the people that are it's exciting to talk with here today. So for me, that was a, that was part of the fun moment of seeing those those pieces coalesce. I feel like uh, Second Life is actually poised for a big comeback. <laughs> I get this feeling, so I'm going to keep an eye on that. Uh, yeah, uh, we did want to mention that actually, because Connie's name keeps coming up, yeah. so we didn't want to say that she was invited, but unfortunately was traveling, so it's not like we're having this conversation and leaving Connie out, so yeah. I just wanted to say that. Because... We hope she can contribute along with you know the rest of the world sort of asynchronously after the fact that we keep the dialogue going, because we know we can't get 
all of the story today, but we can start the story. Yeah. So I want to build on, on what you all have said, because when we were talking about preparing this, this webinar, we found that we were often trying to refer to DML, and we, we started using the term field among us, and then we realized that that was a term that may or may not be accurate to what the intention to build DML was and what it actually became. So I, I have a question to you. Were you looking to build a field? Do you think DML is a field? And if so, what is that field? It's a difficult three questions, but any part of that that any of you want to jump in on would be really great. Well, I remember very distinctly, um, and it was around the conversations of the book series that Henry mentioned, that we were saying, what do we call this thing? And their digital media and learning was kind of a placeholder for just, you know, these, it's not like there were, it was deliberate, right? It was about digital, but it was about media, not technology. And it was also learning and not education, right? So there were some really deliberate word choices, but there was also this sense that it was a placeholder because even back then we had the intuition that what was important about this particular network of uh, folks was not the technology, but an approach to learning. But we didn't have a name for it back then. So there was a lot of really, but then the name kind of stuck because there wasn't really a word that captured it until I think we did a much longer process of a deep dive on our approach to learning when we came up uh, collectively with the term connected learning to describe, you know, it has a digital component, but it's really a, a orientation to learning that holds our network together. Now, I, we, at the hub, we have been using the word field to describe uh, DML. Now, the hub came about much later in this trajectory, so it was after, you know, the early stuff that Henry and Nicole and I were involved in. It was after what Ben described as the official launch of the DML initiative as a foundation initiative in 2006. Um, it was fairly soon after that that we started realizing that we did want to build a field, right? And that was a lot of the impetus for why the hub was funded because it, the, I think when the foundation decided to make a significant investment in this area as uh, a core of their education strategy, uh, it was clear that they wanted it to be more than a series of funded projects. Mm -hmm. And so the work of the hub has really been focused on things like the annual conference, uh, supporting not just one research network, but two linked research networks, which was unique, right? That usually the research network, there's one and it's the thing, but we have the participatory politics and the connected learning research network, which are coordinated and share infrastructure through the hub. And then there was the communications layer, which was also an investment that was, I feel, fairly unique for this kind of uh, early stage innovation-oriented funding and having a foundation also invest in field building in parallel with funding innovative projects and research networks. So, uh, yeah, I would, um, and I think over time, like the hub is now in its, uh, it depends whether you include the planning phase, but yeah, we've, the conference, what is this, the sixth conference? Somebody should, yeah. So we've been around for six or seven years, and 
I feel like we can call it, uh, I feel like a field has coalesced um, around the, the DML work and, you know, the question on the table is really whether uh, connected learning is becoming broader than what we might consider a field, which is the professional piece of it, and whether it is becoming more of a movement or a cultural uh, kind of, uh, you know, something in the air that's broader than those of us who are professionally identified with the field. Yeah, so um, as I think it's a field, and having been, I was part of the first class of learning science, so being around for the beginning of learning sciences and the first couple of um, uh, conferences for learning sciences, small, everyone, you know, everyone knew each other, uh, people came from two universities. Definitely think this is a field, and I think the interesting thing, but I think it's also more, I think what's interesting is it's also a movement because it's more than just academics, and um, so I think it's unique, um, and I think that presents some of the challenges because you have to feed and support both differently, and you know, so what do you have to do to keep the, uh, the academic side um, developing and growing? which might be a little different and is different than what you have to do from the movement side. And I know Mimi has thought a lot about that and, and thinking about how do you support both because you're unique in that you've been responsible in some in the institutions you have led, Mimi, of leading both on the research and on the, uh, on the movement side. So I definitely would say it's a field. And I always get that when I go to other conferences and I go like, well, where's, where do I feel home? And where do I feel is the place that has that brings all the pieces together, which I think you know are relevant for my work. And for me, that has probably been more so recently. It's been probably more so the DML than some of the other academic communities that I would say are home. Yeah, I think one of the important things to say about a field as opposed to a discipline is that a field allows participation from people from multiple disciplinary backgrounds. And as Nicole was just suggesting for makers, doers, educators, nonprofits, artists, as well as academics. And I think from the beginning there was a real consciousness about how do we build those bridges between those groups of people so that we can develop some shared vocabulary and vision and yet we can empower people to bring what they know to the table and to facilitate that conversation. And I think as someone who's funded and worked with a lot of different organizations, I've never seen anyone tackle those problems as thoughtfully or systematically as MacArthur and Connie Yowell and the others on that team really went at it. So as we were doing the first documents for DML, my white paper, the, document, the report of the Digital Youth Project that Mimi headed, so forth, I think we were very aware that we were connecting different groups of people together. So. I knew that I was trying to connect media and cultural studies work that had looked at fandom and gaming and online communities up with educators who were trying to think about informal, informal learning. And I think, you know, if you look at the original teams for each of our projects, there were people of various disciplinary backgrounds around the table which shaped those ideas as they took roots. Mimi and I have often talked through the years about the different choices we made on vocabulary across those two early documents. So our job, I think, was to use words that elevated certain practices in popular culture and gave them a certain credibility within the academy. So we have very formal terms, collective intelligence, appropriation, so forth. I think Mimi's work comes out of ground, a kind of grounded theory approach where she really, her team really drew on the vocabulary that young people themselves had, uh, geeking out, hanging out, 
messing around, and those words had a different kind of power at that moment. But the, those vocabularies worked together, I think, to create a space that had academic respectability and yet was immediately graspable by people at every every level of the enterprise. And I think that founda those foundations have remained true down to the DML conferences, which are fabulous in their mix of theory and practice and multidisciplinary perspectives. Yes. I was just thinking here, and I remember the Connected Learning Research Network and how it reflects, you know, this idea of sort of interdisciplinarity. And, you know, one of the things that I really appreciated about DML is its sort of recognition that these issues are really complex and they're layered and sort of multidimensional. So in addition to the questions and insights that a sociologist might bring, you know, in terms of our network, you know, we have economists, we have education scholars, we have designers, uh, we have media scholars. And what it really facilitates, right, is a much more robust uh, and, and, and I think sort of re refined kind of engagement with, with really complex issues. I think we all benefit sort of individually from participating in communities and conversations like that. But I think importantly, the field or the movement you know, also grows and evolves in ways that I, I do think have a mark on the field. And, and as we begin to sort of look forward, you know, look ahead, you know, I think a lot of the work that's been initiated through DML is beginning to have impact in other fields and other disciplines. So in that sense, um, you know, I think there's a lot to be appreciative of in terms of, uh, you know, what the sort of field building uh, kind of exercise has meant, not only for 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 our particular community, but I think for, for for other kinds of disciplines, other kinds of researchers. I think certainly for younger scholars who are coming up who look at and sort of admire a lot of the sort of interdisciplinary work that that DML has really sort of helped to shape and facilitate. So um, I have uh, two questions um, that are related to this and, and building off of this notion of the field. But um, in case, Ben, you, you wanted to jump in here, because uh, I, I just saw your microphone go off. Um, and, and no. Go for it. OK. Uh, so I, um, you know, in, in talking about this, this field of DML, it seems that there's been a crucial element, uh, which was really beautifully articulated by a keynote uh, by Ethan Zuckerman a couple of years ago, around uh, this question of is there a crisis in civics, in which he arrived at the conclusion that there's a crisis in agency. Um, but crucial to that entire keynote was around this topic of civics. And it seems that action, activism, civics um, has been a central part of this developing field, uh, a term that I've really loved that Henry has been using more um, in what I feel is this emerging field is the term of civic imagination. So I wanted to know uh, reflections on, on civic imagination and civics in general uh, and, and the role that that plays in this field. Um, I'd love to hear some reflections there. That's the first of my two questions. All right, since you, you started with the civic imagination, maybe I should jump in and define what we, how we're using that word and try to connect it back to those, those earlier moments. For us, the, civic, the idea of the civic imagination is before you can change the world, you have to be able to imagine what a different world would look like. You have to see yourself as having the civic agency to bring about change. You have to have the capacity to map what that change might look like and in many cases, you have to have empathy for people whose conditions are different from 
your own. And those are all part of how one builds activism. And we've been arguing that the civic imagination is all, there's always forms of civic imagination. The founding fathers of the US, it was ancient Greece and Rome were really key for thinking about what an American democracy might look like. For the black church and the, the black civil rights movement in the 50s and 60s, it's the language of the black church. What we're seeing today is that young people are getting involved online often, using any media necessary to advocate for change, and as they do so, they're often forming the civic imagination and language borrowed from popular culture, superheroes, wizards, games, so forth. In some ways, I think that was an intuition that we had quite early on, and I think we'd see signs of that in the Digital Youth Project. You'd see signs of that in the... Uh, in the white paper my team wrote, I think it's deepened in MacArthur over the time so that we now have the youth and participatory politics network as an important wing of the DML movement that's trying to look actively at the, the, li the political lives of American youth. To me, the key, you're right, the key word is agency. And that's true, take, we can take that back to the idea of learning as a central piece here. The difference between teaching and learning is that learning emphasizes the agency of young people and shaping their own educational experience. That learning is bigger than schooling and that includes taking, finding voice, helping to influence decisions, being more actively active participants in the culture around them. And that idea of a participatory culture and a participatory politics I think has animated many of us in the DML movement from the very beginning. So. Uh it's actually interesting. I love the use of the word agency because one of the conversations we've had a lot with Digital Youth Network was the use of the term civic and what it meant particularly for urban youth and whether we were whether what we were doing was more civic based or much more empowering them with a voice that then we were hoping they were applying to civic issues but we weren't coming in to the, the work we were doing from uh, from, a, uh, from a civic standpoint. But what we've seen as we've watched many of the young people um, that we've worked with um, over the years now are college graduates. We have uh, the first two that we started working with in the beginning of the work who are now worked with us and they've graduated from college and, and things. Many of them are, re are using their digital literacies for civic, uh, for civic purposes. Um, but it's, 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 it's been an interesting conversation and in in, uh, I think worth exploring in terms of how that term is used and understood by underrepresented groups. Um, and how they then find their own path in to using digital to to um, apply it not to just pop culture issues with respect to technology, but begin to apply those developing skills to have impact outside of their uh, outside of their media communities. And I think that's some of what we learned when we started doing like a new media space, which because it brought kids together across multiple different communities. I think pushed some of the civic issues to the forefront in ways that they didn't need to necessarily be at the forefront when we were more working in a particular neighborhood or a particular set of schools. You know, I think one of the things that's been, uh, for me, really wonderful about DML is this, this sort of willingness to um, to look at young people and, and to learn from them, right? So, so we don't simply just study young people or observe them. I think we also respect um, their own vision, their own agency, their own practices, their own aspirations, and that has, um, I think, you know, um, enabled us to sort of see things that, that might otherwise be difficult to see in terms of how they are kind of inventing new kinds of practices, new expressions of identity, 
a new sense of civic agency uh, through the very social media platforms that they're oftentimes you know maligned for using. Uh, so in that sense, if you look at hashtag activism, if you look at just a, a number of things that are happening, sort of in the deal with mobile technologies in terms of uh, you know what what Joseph Kahn and, and Kathy Cohen referred to as sort of participatory politics. You know, again, it sort of represents uh, you know these kinds of shifts that are happening, uh, and how DML has been willing, right, to sort of uh, to sort of insert ourselves in that space in those fields to sort of understand these transformations and to try to think in very deliberate and nuanced ways about them. But but again, not only looking at young people's objects to study, but also thinking about you know what they bring in terms of agency, what they bring in terms of uh, their own practices, and how we can learn from that. Yeah, and I think what, Craig, you're talking about is um, really important that we, you know, and this has been a big focus of the YPP network is to, by uh, really engaging with young people and understanding what participation in public life and making a difference in the world looks like for them, we're expanding what people traditionally count as civic and political participation. And Andrew, your work with HPA is such a great example, as is uh, Henry and his team. I think that the term civic imagination really starts to do some work in disrupting the conventional narrative around civics and politics, which I think is one of the unique uh, focus of this strand of work within DML. And, you know, Sangeeta and Liana and um, Henry's team have worked with Lissa, Soap, and I in sort of also trying to consider the intersection with learning and development and developing a framework um, around connected civics that uh, builds on and mirrors the connected learning framework. So I think those dimensions of the work, it's not just about civics and politics in the adult-driven perspective, but really looking from young people's point of view and their particular uh, social worlds, their position in society, and their developmental trajectories is uh, a unique focus of the work. And then just to bring it back to the DML field, I also think that what's uh, been a really productive tension within DML is that we have both the research dimension, which is about being evidence-driven and sober and acknowledging structural inequity and all these things that are really, really challenging problems in the world and not shying away from that reality, but also having a very kind of forward-looking, change the world, try it, you know, like Henry was saying, improvise. I, I like to think that at our best moments, we're able to both be, uh, you know, be kind of grounded visionaries, right, so that we're, we're both advocating for really uh, progressive vision and trying things out and an audacious vision of change while also uh, doing, you know, that hard work of grounding it in reality and research. I, I would agree, and I would, in fact, um, something for me, who, I came to this field not as an academic, which I think may, be, may put me somewhat in the minority. I feel like a lot of the leaders in the field had PhDs, had, were part of research teams. For me, it felt really unusual to encounter the DL, DML uh, field as an area where people were asking questions as part of the beginning of work. And I know that that may seem very natural for so many people in research, but I think that for people in the civic world, as, as Andrew was talking about, so often it begins with advocacy or what we want. And I think that it's both the, the questioning of what are young people doing, some of the initial questions were, you know, how are young people changing? 
you know, how are learning environments changing? How are institutions changing? Those are questions at really different levels of granularity. And I think the openness of those questions mirrored an openness around civics. It's really easy to say, well, this is civic engagement and define it. But I think there was a kind of agnosticism about w defining civic engagement that was incredibly productive. It let it continue to be a question, as in some ways it should be. You know, what is the good society? What are we educating people toward? Hopefully we don't uh, fall into a temptation to answer that question too definitively <laughs> anytime soon. It, it's part of that kind of civic renewal process. At least that's how I I feel like uh, it, it is most productive. And I think for me that that openness with the questioning both on the research and on the civic side, uh, the civic helped broaden the question to the the broader public good um, and what can learning do. And I and I continue to encounter people who are not too close to digital media and learning, do not go to every conference, but bring it up and talk about it. And part of what they talk about, I think, is that some of those broader notions of what what are young people actually doing um, and what can what can they actually do with some of the things they, they get out of it. So I think that that openness and that questioning is very useful. Awesome. Um, this is a great moment for my second question here. Um, and I want to acknowledge, uh, as I ask the second question, that there's a great question um, uh, in the chat and the Q&A uh, about the role of young, people's, uh, of young people in uh, DML's civic imagination. Um, and you know, on that note, I mean, this is getting into what that, precisely what Henry was saying earlier about the difference between a discipline and a field. Um, and uh, and the, in a field you have you have people like Ben who can come in. You have young people who can come in. Um, it's not simply the professionals in that specific uh, arena. And um, and something that Mimi had said earlier, um, or Craig, I, I can't remember now at this point, but one of you had said it um, was about going from being a field to also envisioning a movement. And I I think my my main question is here is. What does that look like? And I and to present a kind of challenge uh, here is um, uh, Henry mentioned our, our founding fathers as having a profound civic imagination, um, and yet at the same time, a lot of those most of those founders owned human beings as property. Um, the ethos at the time was that was acceptable. Uh, if the work of the Harry Potter Alliance is remembered, let's say I'm remembered, one in a billion shot, but let's say it happens 300 years from now, people would say, yeah, that was great, but. Uh, he ate factory farmed meat, which makes him a monster. And even his vegan friends that were friends with him, they were friends with the monster. So they were monsters. The ethos matters, and we see that very clearly in, um, in, uh, in marriage equality going in the last 10 years. Um, uh, that ethos matters. And I think one of the things we've seen with DML is that it's changed the ethos of the conversation. But in terms of going to movement, from field to movement, how do we accelerate that? Are we at an inflection point now where we can begin to become advocates. Because clearly, and I don't think I need to explain this to anyone um, uh, here that's watching or, or that's part of this, the rest of the education discussion that's happening in the US, from the presidential debates to the Department of Education, the mainstream discussion that's happening in the media is not asking the kinds of questions that DML is asking. Um, it, it's asking fairly shallow, they're asking the wrong questions, I would argue, and looking at the wrong metrics. Um, and I think DML is so much more advanced and. Uh, and has tremendous power, and with great power comes great responsibility. So the question is, how how are we going to use that power now um, uh, in becoming a movement? Uh, what does that look like from a policy level, from an advocate level, from a, a place of really changing the ethos of the entire nation and world in terms of how we talk about education and learning um, and civics? And civics. Um, 
So I, I, I do want to ask this question because, I, and, and it, maybe I'm not, um, it depends on how the prior question was phrased. And um, So I think of civics as a key part of DML, but I don't think of DML and civics as you only do DML if you do civics. Um, and that's, that's an important distinction to me because I think of, um, and I'm curious what other people what other people think about that. Like how intertwined is civics? Uh, and Mimi, if I think about like the book, Pomago, how, I mean, how key was civics when you when in when you look at the young lives of of the people that you were talking to? And the reason I'm asking that is because I was about to answer your question one way, but then when you added civics, it made me. I said, oh, maybe I shouldn't answer it in the way I wanted to answer it. So I just wanted to raise that question about how integrated is civics and DML, um, how people perceive it as intertwined it is. It, I think that's an interesting um, point. Your, um, you know, Andrew, your, your question I think is, is a compelling one. Um, you know, when I also think about DML, um, you know, and this is, I, I think, an honest a sort of sort of reflection is that you know DML was asking questions, you know, at at, at its initial sort of uh, launch, that many people weren't weren't asking, you know, and, and are just not really be, really beginning to ask, and and DML was sort of observing and recognizing and acknowledging a world that had kind of come into existence in terms of how young people's relationship to technology had changed dramatically, and so I'm sure many of you here, you know, who were you know, being invited to give talks to school districts and to communities. I mean, there was a lot of anxiety around technology, a lot of anxiety around bringing technology into the school, a lot of anxiety about what technology is doing to young people. And a lot of it was negative. A lot of it was, um, you know, really sort of anxious about sort of negative impacts. And and I think, you know, part of what DML has, has done is sort of opened up a space to sort of think about, you know, how this, this future world that's happening now can really be leveraged, right, to, to, to produce more equitable kinds of outcomes, or at least imagine more equitable kinds of outcomes. So I do think, you know, as we as we look forward, you know, one question will be is how do we leverage the community, the field, a lot of the energy and ideas that have been generated, how do we leverage that into policy impact? Um, but I do think, uh, you know, DML uh, was sort of a leader in terms of asking those questions. I think it's made it easier for other foundations to begin to start thinking about things like games, things about uh, how technology is sort of impacting learning uh, that are now being funded that, that arguably, right, would not have been considered uh, fundable uh, kinds of projects or initiatives without uh, AML and MacArthur sort of taking that risk to really sort of take the lead on some of these questions. So in that sense, you know, I think the, the potential for impact uh, is, is certainly there. Uh, and how we, how we think about that, how we leverage that, how we move forward, I think is important. But when I think of movement, for me, movement equals impact. Movement e equals taking the research and the ideas out into the world and interacting with the world and then being able to engage the world in, in creative ways, inventive ways that are inspired by research, but also open to the realities of what's happening sort of in the everyday life world of schools, children, communities, uh, and other people. So, yeah, I think, oh. uh, go ahead, Mimi. Oh. <laughs> okay, so yeah, I think it's, um, you know, just to bring Craig's comment back to Nicole's point, I think, you know, the, the terms that we use like civics and political, uh, you know, that is something that we've all sort of hotly debated within our community and are very challenging because they all signal a broader imagination about it and as well as 
possibly an assumption about what the levers of change should be, right? So civic, you can pursue change through civic institutions, through political institutions, through popular culture, through technology. There are a lot of theories, um, approaches, mechanisms for change in what we might think of as the movement for connected learning or whatever you want to call it. And I think that's what's interesting about this community is that we are pursuing uh, change in a wide range of sectors, right? And I think the civic one is very important. And some people use civic engagement to mean more than change through civic, what we might define as civic institutions. But you know, I think what Nicole's suggesting is that there are other levers like uh, working through um, you know, tech or pop culture that we're also pursuing. And I think that richness of, you know, whether when we were looking from a young person's point of view, that was what we were learning is that we are seeing young people make a, have a influence or impact in the world. And we can debate what um, sector it's most important or what we call it. The, imagine, the imagination around it, as Henry describes, is incredibly important. But I think there is productive heterogeneity in how we're approaching this movement. And we, at the best of times, are keeping each other honest. So, you know, I just launched a tech startup and, you know, it was sort of like I'm doing the same work but through a very different sector. You know, I'm trying to deliver online learning experiences for young people. I would not call that a civic project by any stretch of the imagination. It's a for-profit company that's sort of leveraging all of the uh, kind of infrastructure and cultural imagination and all the things that is associated with a tech startup and the social capital and you know funding mechanisms. But it's all in the service of the same vision of change, right? So um, I think it's. Uh, it's interesting to see how this community is, uh, I think this field has been able to embrace that heterogeneity, but I think there's also a lot of important tension and debate that comes out of it as well. So I, when we st I think it's useful to go back and think about what DML was positioning itself in relation to. And I think as, we, as that time it began, this phrase 21st century skills, was looming large in the educational content, educational policy world. And that phrase almost invariably meant skills in using technology that help prepare young people for the workplace. And I think part of what DML flipped was this emphasis on empowering young people to meaningfully participate in whatever sectors were most important in their lives. Right. So yes, empowerment brings with it a vocabulary of civics and politics. It brings with it an, a, an emphasis on learning and learning for the student's perspective. It brings with it industry and uh, economic opportunities, especially for those who've been locked out. It brings with it community readiness and expressiveness, uh, artistic expression. All of that seems bound up with the early idea of, of thinking about education for meaningful participation in the new media environment. Now, I've just been reading back through proofs of a book that Mimi Ito and Dana Boyd and I have coming out later this year from Polity, where the three of us really reflect over the last 10 years of debates about participation in culture, learning, and politics. And it's clear that the issues today are far more complex 
as we understand them than they seemed 12 years ago when we were having these first conversations, which were still in that, af that first aftermath of the blush of digital, the digital revolution. We now know it's going to be harder to get young people to be able to fully participate. We now see the economic obstacles, the social obstacles, the political obstacles, which means that this is a movement that's not just about educating people with skills, but overcoming the participation gaps that affect them in their everyday lives. Now, what does that movement look like? I mean, it, yes, it, it could involve institutional change, but what I've seen more through DML is that we are working with an army of teachers, each of whom chosen at their school level to become more involved, or to sort of take risk, to go out on their own, apply these ideas, discuss them, try innovations in their classrooms, some of which have had really important impact. But the question of scalability is one that I think DML has increasingly circled around as we think about what does it mean to get this change into school-wide systems, statewide systems, national educational policy. One, one thing to just add to what Henry's saying in terms of positioning, I think so much of the scaling pressure what, that comes up in foundation talk, that comes up in scaling education, that comes up in scaling research, it, it, it's often about product scaling or, or scaling ideas. I think that, that scaling networks is really something fairly distinctive to, the, to DML, and I think a, a notion that school is just one node on a network, which is a, a kind of phrase that Connie Yell has been tossing around and, and many of others have taken up in different pieces, and I think it, it works so nicely with what how connected learning emerged. I think that that kind of multi-node network approach to, to scaling um, it seems to me to be one of the most productive areas that, that, that makes this uh, a field and it's, and it's been a really nice through line. I wonder if other people would agree as well, but to complement what Henry was saying about what this initiative was pushing against, I think it was in some ways pushing against that there was one place we were going to find one solution and when we were going to scale it up. Um, and, and I think that, the, that instead to think about it as a, a network of, of solutions um, has um, been very productive. So I'm going to actually jump in on the on the sort of words through line impact that have been going around. We're unfortunately almost the top of the hour, so it's going to get a final question in. We've been working on this um, DML 2055 DML in Action project that you'll be hearing more about in the upcoming weeks. But as a final question to you all, I wanted to sort of take us to the future to 2055 and and have you imagine what DML is or what DML has done or what DML means at that point. So sort of just really quickly sort of if you think of DML 2055, what do you imagine? In a positive, in the best possible scenario, let's go, you know, imagination. <laughs> Tough question. Um, I'll take a, an initial uh, stab at this. Um, so 2055, um, which is probably not as, as far from now as, as it might seem today. Um, you know, whether or not DML will, 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 will be a, sort of a, a, a tangible entity then, you know, I, I, I do think um, the prospects for the kinds of conversations that will take place then um, and how we continue to reimagine the future, that those conversations, those debates, those communities, those networks, those institutions that are invested in securing more equitable futures will have been informed by the wonderful uh, and I think um, sincere and creative work uh, that DML has inspired. 
I think one reason that makes this question a difficult one to answer is that DML has been responsive to changes in the cultural and technological environment, the things young people are invested in. So the temptation is to say there will be new media centers in every library in the country that will have schools based on quest to learn, that will have reimagined education to incorporate the informal learning and connect that to the rest of society. That's the, that's the vision. But since we don't know what the technologies are going to be, we don't know what the forms of culture are going to be, are games even relevant as a form of expression that far out? I don't think we know the answer to that. So I'm hoping DML continues to evolve and reinvent itself, always responding to whatever kids are into these days and always uh, sort of embracing the changes that are taking place in the communication environment. So in um, so I think in forty years we will have you know we will have the first group of students who have who have experienced the you know really grown up in this age be what parents they would have be beginning to have teenagers so it'd be really interesting to see how that generation um, which was, should be in the leadership position of the DML work takes it because they would have been experienced it themselves and also now looking at their kids growing up in, in that particular environment. So as Henry said, I don't think we know because it is so connected to what's going on from a technological standpoint. We hope that that strength and that connection stays strong, that it doesn't become an academic, you know, um, just an academic discipline um, that's not strongly connected to the, uh, to the ground. But I think but having, having participants, hopefully, who were the first cohort, if you will, actually be in the leadership of it, which they should be, I think, opens up all kinds of tremendous possibilities of where, where DML uh, will be. I'll go out on a limb and say that um, I think that the word digital might go away. Um, I'll, I'll be, we'll see. I'll be curious if that happens, but it could be a little bit like the uh, horseless carriage, which we suddenly just start calling a carriage, or it becomes a car. I think that we that may be domesticated and normalized, and I think there will still be there'll be something new. It'll be maybe it'll still be media learning and something, but I, I think it'll be interesting to see as some. It's similar to this point about young people growing up. What will the next generation see as so natural? Um, I think that a lot of the questions will will still be here, so I hope that we're still, like Henry said, asking questions and listening um, to where where young people actually are. Nini, did you want to jump in really quickly? Sure. Yeah. So I I would second the idea that maybe digital will fade, but I hope that connected will uh, continue as a term. And to get to uh, Nicole's intergenerational point, I find it absolutely. Um, Thrilling to think of, you know, the what we think of as digital kids becoming connected parents, and uh, in 40 years, I hope that we um, learning won't be a site of intergenerational strife and conflict, but will actually be one of connection and mutual appreciation. So that's what I hope for my kids and their offspring. Great. Thank you, everybody, so much. I'm going to have to rattle through some text. It's going to be like the end disclaimer to, you know, a medical ad because I have to do it really fast. <laughs> so <laughs> there will be a full be Thank you so much, everybody. I want to say that really Thank slowly. So it was much. awesome, awesome conversation. We will be in touch. And uh, I'm going to do this really quickly. There will be a full video recording of this webinar Im available immediately on connectedlearning.tv. Other curated content will be on the way. And um, so this wraps up our webinar. 
uh, highlighting themes from the DML 2015 conference and, um, ha and hashtag connected learning. If you found this con conversation helpful, please share it with your network. If you'd like to find out about upcoming webinars from Connected Learning TV, please visit the same site, connectedlearning.tv. And thank you, everybody, and see you in the conference in June um, in LA. Yeah, thanks, everybody. <laughs> thank you.